0: Welcome to the Fish Nerds. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast. This is a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm back in the driver's seat again. I was a little sick last week and I was at summer camp and I couldn't get a show together. So we did a rerun. I hope you liked it. Um, I, I'm thinking about putting more of those old shows out just to get them, get them up for you all. Uh, but anyway hey welcome to the show this week on the show i am uh, working at summer camp so i have some camp stories to tell you doc martin is in doc martin is our fish doctor correspondent and she will be answering listener questions hugo medeiros our fish cooking correspondent is back still eating just like a seagull and at the end of the show stay tuned for your local fishing report speaking of which we need more callers so we're asking you the listeners the fishermen or women themselves who are out in the field fishing to call 607-378 fish leave us a voicemail and tell us what fishing is like in your area just a one minute maximum message saying hey in north conway new hampshire fishing has been great the bass are eating the pumpkin seeds are pumpkining or whatever is happening in your area share it with us and I will put it on the end of the show if you are a guide or own an outfitting business or anything else that you want to plug. You can also plug that in that in that little segment. So you can get free advertising just for being part of the show. So it's really exciting. We also have fish in the news today for you. Uh, but we're going to open today with Stump the Fish Nerds. We haven't had one of these in a long time. If you have any questions about fish, you can call 607-378-FISH and leave us a voicemail, and we'd be happy to answer your fishy questions for you. This one came in over email. Not my favorite way to get them, because we do an audio show, but we're going to take it anyway. And this is from Kevin Kupzik from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, he says, hey Clay, just saw this clip put out by Nebraska Game and Parks regarding new, a new fish ladder. I've heard you talk often about the ladder you worked at years ago, but never quite could quite visualize how it works. Is it similar to this Z-type ladder? Thanks for any reply. I'm sure I'm not the only listener who would enjoy hearing more. Your fan and Patreon supporter, Kevin. Uh, Patreon is great, by the way. Uh, so here's the deal. So a fish ladder is... They shouldn't even call them ladders because it's just misleading. They should call them fish staircases. The one I worked at was... It was like a giant long Z shaped thing, and there were like 74 pools. Each one went up about two feet. So imagine this just this giant cement raceway with just a, a square pool, and then another square pool raised up two feet, another square pool raised up two feet, with some holes cut through the cement wall so fish could swim up. So it's an incremental rising. Of the river. Um, And I guess it's pretty scientific the way they put these together. They have to make sure the flow rates are just right to attract whatever species of fish they're designed for. The one I worked at in Manchester was designed for anadromous migratory fish, things like Atlantic salmon, herring, uh, shad, sea lampreys, uh, and of course the catadromous American eel. Uh, This one in Nebraska, I watched a little video and I'll put that up on the website. Uh, that one looks like it's designed for channel catfish, which I've never even heard of needing a fish ladder before. So that's just brand new for me. But the concept is essentially the same. It's just a little incremental rise in the river, uh, just enough to get the fish up over the top of the dam. Uh, and it's, yeah, same concept. Um, it's just a step, step, step. Now, some some dams uh, in some parts of the country have fish elevators. And what those are is a raceway with lots and lots of water running through it, and this big, like, bucket, I say bucket, I mean like a 12 by 12, you know, uh, like bucket loader type bucket, uh, sitting down in the water, and the fast water in the raceway attracts the fish. At the end of the raceway, there's a gate they close when the fish are in the raceway, and it crowds them into the bucket, and they're physically lifted over the top of the dam and dumped uh, upstream. So there's, there's two kinds of uh, fish upstream bypasses. One's a fish ladder, and the other would be a fish elevator. Hope that answers your Stump the Fish Nerds questions. I'll put some uh, some videos of fish ladders in action up at uh, fishnerds.com on the show notes, and you can take a look at different types of fish ladders. Thanks, Kevin, for checking in with us. And and Kevin just reminded me to, to talk a little bit about Patreon. Uh, our show uh, is largely funded, in fact, entirely funded by uh, our listeners. That's you guys. If you're enjoying the Fish Nerds and you want to be part of this and you want to make sure that we keep doing it, uh, we're asking everyone to go to patreon.com forward slash Nerds and put a dollar uh, per episode in the hat. So if, if uh, one hour of, of us talking about fish is worth a dollar to you, throw some money in the hat and help us fund this show. So four bucks a month would be the maximum you you give and that keeps us going and keeps winding our sails, and it, it's really great. Well, I'll mail some decals to you and some swag once in a while, a little thank you card. And we really appreciate it, and it makes a big difference. Without Patreon, we would not be here still making this podcast. Uh, we do have one Patreon subscriber who is throwing some money in the hat at the $25 level. That's a pretty high level, but that's our sponsorship level. Uh, and that would be uh, Josh Lopes from LopesTax.com. Josh uh, is a friend of mine, and he uh, is a accountant, as you could guess, and he's in Hanover, Massachusetts, and if you're looking for a good tax guy who's not just good at doing taxes or your money, but he's also a great person, uh, go to LopesTax.com. tell him the Fish Nerds sent you, and uh, maybe he'll give you a better deal. Maybe not, I don't know. Anyway, go to patreon.com slash fishnerds, and throw some money in the hat. All right, so listen, I'm, I'm working at a summer camp. Uh, I, my, you're going to love this. My, my day job now for the next two weeks, I just did two weeks of it, so next two weeks going forward, is driving a pontoon boat for seven hours a day and bringing kids fishing. Um, it's, it's a great, it's a good job. Uh, it doesn't pay much, but it's a really good job. My kids get to go to camp because I'm doing it. But I, I get to learn a lot about fishing with kids, and I'm learning that as I'm getting older at this, my patience level... Is, is getting less and less. What I've really, my new new piece of fishing advice for fishing with kids is stop using bobbers if you can. If you're on a boat, get rid of the bobbers. What I'm finding is if kids are using bobbers, then the fish are swallowing the hooks more often and you're killing a lot more fish, if, especially if you catch and release It's really not great. So get rid of the bobbers. And I've been using 1 um, 1⁄8-ounce uh, uh, tin jigs ...with a hunk of worm on them, and we've been catching all species. And this year, what's really cool is is I've had kids... We've had this week four kids catch trophy New Hampshire fish species. Now, most states have a... Either they call it trophy patch fish, or they call it uh, a uh, pin fish, or some other sort of program where, where the state recognizes trophy fish, big fish being caught. So New Hampshire has a trophy patch program. So the kids uh, tend to send a photo in, fill out a form, some measurements of the fish... And they'll get a patch recognizing them as being trophy anglers. Uh, and we had one kid last week, his first fish he ever caught was a black crappie, which I've been fishing this lake for 13 years and never caught. And he, his first fish he ever caught was a, a a 14-inch black crappie, which is a really big fish. And uh, for his first fish, he's getting a trophy patch. So it's really fun to see, see all this happening. And of course, we're making a huge deal about it, because making a big deal about fish with kids is what makes them keep fishing. Uh, and we need more more people fishing. So it's been really fun, but ridiculous. Um, It's just a lot of fun. Uh, So yeah, having a good time at summer camp, and we'll be back on our regular show in a few weeks when I get back. Um, But it's totally fun. Um, Yeah, So, but there's no deep stories yet to tell. I'm I'm still kind of digging in on that. But that's where I've been. So if you're following along on our Facebook group, you're seeing photos from that summer camp. I can't share pictures of the kids because you know, we look out for the kids. I will tell you that we took them all deep sea fishing and we hired a private charter. Uh, Usually we go on like a head boat, which is a boat that you get on and it's like, you know, you're 12 people plus 70 strangers. And we hired a private charter this week to take us fishing. And we thought that meant we would be catching tons and tons of fish. uh, And we couldn't have been more wrong. And and I'm not going to mention the charter's name. And the captain was a heck of a nice guy. But uh, he sold us a trip that he couldn't um, deliver. And, I, and I, I'm new at guiding, and I don't want to judge too heavily, but it's really really hard to swallow when you pay a lot of money to go fishing, and the captain doesn't seem to have done his homework or been prepared to bring you to the fish he said he could put you on. Um, so, uh, for example, we went out, and it was 12, 10 kids, 2 adults. He had only 6 fishing rods on the boat. So right there is a problem. Now I have kids standing around not fishing, and anyone's worked with kids knows that uh, idle hands are bad news. So that's the biggest problem. The other problem is his gear was was really set for really deep sea fishing, and we were inshore fishing for mackerels, and he was set up for uh, for cod and haddock. Um, but he had the, on the on the big fat rods, he had sabiki rig, which is a series of flies on strings, uh, and they were all rusted and no good. So it was really just kind of a dud of a trip. And unfortunately, that means I won't be calling that captain again. So, uh, all of you all of you folks out there who are guiding, please put your best foot forward, no matter what. Um, I will say that you know summer camps are you know we're notoriously cheap, and we probably weren't going to pay them a whole lot of extra money for tips, but but you know do well because it it matters and it it and it. It's bad for all of us in the industry if we're not doing our very best to, to put it, <laughs> our best foot forward so uh, I'm not gonna badmouth name his name but uh it was it was kind of a bummer it just it just really makes you sad to pay for a charter and not be uh, not be its best it can be now not catching fish not his fault necessarily uh, if he was prepared to catch fish um, you can't you can't guarantee fish on every trip but not being prepared was a problem so Anyway, that's summer camp, and the doctor is in. We're back with Dr. Erica Martin. Uh, Doc Martin has been part of our show for a very long time. She is our fish nerd biologist uh, out in Kansas. She's a professor. She's fantastic, and she has been answering your fishy questions for years. So here's the good doctor.
1: Testing one, two. Alright. Hello. Um, so, hey, all you Fish Nerds fans. This is Doc Martin. Um, I have been traveling like crazy, uh, since school got out, um, and teaching a class and doing all sorts of other crazy things, because I guess I'm just not busy enough, and I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently. (laughs) Um, but I am back finally. I am not traveling anywhere the whole month of July, which, well, except to and from work, so that's completely acceptable. My, um, aquarium microcosm setup, the, if you follow the Facebook page, you've seen I've posted a few pictures. I've got some master's students helping me set that up. It is getting ready to go. I am waiting for some parts to come in next week, and then I should have everything to get those suckers up and running and I hope to have our first run through before fall semester starts which I can't believe I'm talking about fall semester already (laughs) This it goes too fast um anyway uh this is a question from a fan that was given to me quite a long time ago uh, but like I said I'm starting to catch up so I hope to have a few more uh, of these questions answered for you and if you have your own question you can always call the fish nerds and leave a voicemail or you can go on to our facebook podcast fan page and you can uh, write your question on there if you don't know how to tag me uh erica martin you can tag clay or someone else and they will make sure that i read it and then i will put it in my file as questions that need answered um Well, without further ado, this is about thermal tolerance in fishes. Um, I believe the original question was specific to largemouth bass and cold tolerance, Um, but I thought I would start with just a brief overview of some generalizations on thermal tolerance, what that means, and then go into some of course some crazy exceptions to the rules that we know because those are always fun um and i should note that for all of these um speeches that i give little talks that you guys listen to i do use uh, books and peer-reviewed literature and all these different sources so i keep a list of these sources if any of you would want to know what those are or anything like that um i'm you can just holler at me and I will send you a link or at least a citation for those things. Um, So first, what is thermoregulation? Uh, So thermo, temperature, regulation, regulation. So it's a process that allows your body, or in this case, a fish body, uh, to maintain its core internal temperature. So all thermoregulation mechanisms are designed to return the body to homeostasis, and homeostasis is just a fancy term, meaning kind of ideal, Uh, but the proper definition is the tendency towards a relatively stable equilibrium between interdependent elements, especially as maintained by physiological processes. Basically, there's a temperature that makes your body happy, and you want to stay there, so your body works it out to raise or lower your temperature as needed. However, as almost all of us know, most fish are ectothermic. So that means they don't regulate their own body temperature, but have a body temperature that is close to their environment. But I want to start with a really cool exception. And this is the OPA. So uh, a scientific publication came out in may of 2015 so just a couple years ago in science magazine um about these opas so opas they're also called moonfish and lots of other weird names but they're really big colorful deep bodied pelagic fishes um that are marine so they're found in the ocean they have a they're in a small family called lampardae um, there's only two living species and they occur in the genus Lamprus. So the first one is Lamprus guttatus. So that's just Latin. Uh, guttatus means spotted and refers to this particular species of Opa having spots on its body. The other species is Lamprus immaculatus. Um, so the M part means without and the maculo means stain. So this one does not have spots. So, ta-da! We're very creative. Um, actually, once you get past just the the Latin or Greek forms of words, we name species for pretty obvious reasons, which is kind of cool. Um, Although some of you know that I met Neil deGrasse Tyson and I got to listen to him give one of his speeches, which was wonderful. He gives us a lot of crap over here in biology about having all these complicated terms. And since I'm also working on my master's in theoretical astrophysics, I've got to say that I find comfort in the latin taxonomy way that biology does things but also that was my first love and the one i'm more fluent in so maybe that's just a personal bias sorry neil you're still my hero anyway so warm-blooded animals uh known to scientists we call them endotherms they can conserve metabolic heat uh, to maintain their body above the ambient temperature of their environment, so birds and mammals, we most of us know that those guys are the ones that are endotherms. Um, they get a bunch of benefits from being endothermic. They have can, they can have quicker reaction times, increase muscle power output, improved aerobic performance. Um, now, tuna and laminated sharks, they have kind of regulated their body temperature. They can boost their swimming performance by heating up their muscles, but their ability to do that is really limited. So they're not really endothermic. Um, So the OPA is truly endothermic, and it swims by vigorously flapping its prominent pectoral fins. This constant flapping motion is the source of the internal heat, but to qualify as an endotherm, the fish must also conserve that heat to circulate it throughout all their other organs like the heart and the brain. And they do this, the OPA does this by virtue of their really unique gill structure. So the OPA's gill structure has a counter heat exchange system. So uh, if you guys know anything about how fish actually breathe uh, using oxygen through their gills, the counter current exchange system is not something new. It's just that How the OPA uses it for prevention of heat loss is very, very unique and super, super cool. So um, it prevents the cold blood from entering its body. Uh, The specialized blood vessels in the OPA carry warm blood heated from those pectoral fins to the gills. So that way, as the cold ocean water is coming in the gills, that warm body blood is moving past it and warming it up so the cold water the cold blood never really makes it into the body of the opa so pretty freaking cool i digress anyway like i said most fish cannot do this they cannot regulate their body temperatures maybe just a little bit but in general they can't i think it's um 0.1 percent have evolved the capacity, like tuna and laminated sharks, to heat a, some of their muscles. So just a little tiny bit. So 0.1% can kind of create some heat. It's not very many. Um. So because they can't regulate their body temperatures, most fish have an optimal temperature distribution in the environment where they're found. Okay. So now the original question was looking at bass and asking about cold tolerance. So basically, why, when winter comes, do we not have tiny frozen fish ice cubes everywhere and they survive? Um, If you are a fan of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, there actually is a cool discussion that the main character gets into with a cabbie. um, And he talks about how the Um, Central Park Pond freezes over, and I think the cabbie says something like, oh, the fish freeze right along with the pond, and then when the ice melts, the fish thaw out, and they go on their way. Um, Technically, technically, yes, that can happen. It can. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it can, but more commonly what happens is the layer of ice that forms on the top of the lake, pond, river, wherever, that the cold water will rise. So the warm water sinks a little bit below that because ice floats. So that ice floating actually helps create a little bit of insulation that helps the water body retain some of its heat. So, that helps a little bit. A lot of these fish, especially in fresh water, they'll gather in groups really close to the bottom. Um, Some species like koi and gobies, they can even burrow in sediments and go dormant like some amphibians. Um, But most fish simply school in the deepest parts of the pool and take kind of a winter rest. So in this resting state, the fish's hearts, they slow down. um, They're needs because they're all completely slowing down. Their need for food and oxygen decrease, and they just don't move a whole lot. Okay, so that's that's pretty much the long and short of that. But you know, they just kind of hide out. They find some place that's good enough, and they deal with it. Um, but you know, how how cold is too cold for a bass? Haha. <laughs> uh-huh. so fish are divided into three groups. You have cold water, cool water, and warm water species. Um, so, bass. Fall into the warm water category. Uh, If you're looking for a cool to cold water, I would think of trout and salmon. That's a really good example. Um, So, temperature tolerance and preference is going to vary, can vary depending on where the eggs are laid and the juveniles are raised. So, for some species, if you take some eggs and you put them in a cold tank and a hot tank, and the juveniles are raised on colder temperatures, then those hatch, they grow into adults, and those adults have a higher tolerance for colder temperatures. Right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. A little plasticity, you know, you're raised in a colder environment, you're used, more used to the cold. Okay. So there was a really cool study that showed largemouth bass um, can be exposed to different temperatures and it actually doesn't make a difference. So these, you can raise the eggs of largemouth bass in these different kinds of temperatures, cold normal, hot, whatever, and the adults still have the same acclimation, which is interesting. Um, so in general, the optimal temperature for a largemouth bass, something where they, they grow really well, they're eating well, they're moving around, you're looking between 26 to 28 degrees Celsius. For us Americans, that's 78.8 to 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, in general, the critical thermal maxima for a largemouth bass. Um, so that's just the absolute maximum hot or cold. Um, on the cold end, you're looking at about 3.2 degrees Celsius. So that's about 38 degrees Celsius. And on the high end, it gets too hot. That's 30, uh, just shy of 38 degrees Celsius, which is about 101 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, Nothing can be that easy. You can't just say, oh, if you put a largemouth bass in 38 degrees Celsius water, it will die. That's not exactly what this study is saying because fish can tolerate lower or higher temperatures for brief periods of time. So how long are they going to stay cold? Is it just a few minutes and then it'll be warmed up a little bit again? maybe that's not so bad Maybe they can go even colder than that for a little bit of a shorter time um but if any of you have done this before which i i hope you don't and if you've done this please stop doing it um if you have your live well you know you're gonna catch some fish you're gonna take them home and cook them up and you pull them out of this nice warm water and you got your cooler sitting there and you throw them in the cold water that is shocking and that's a really easy way to even, even if the temperature difference isn't that great, that sudden shock, there's no time for the fish to get used to it. So, you know, depends on if, is the temperature change going to be gradual? and Is it going to be a sustained change in temperature? Is it going to be a sustained cold or a temporary cold? Um, if it, Is it not gradual? Is it happening very quickly? So, but in general, I'd say you're looking at 38 degrees celsius is is on the very cold end for largemouth bass where they're just not going to be able to function um so i thought that was pretty interesting and i know that that's my little, my little short snippet there. Uh, I really hope that that answered your question to whomever you were. And if not, you can always feel free to holler at me on Facebook as well as any of you other lovely fans. And it has been absolutely wonderful, um, bringing you some random fun facts from my office. And I hope y'all have a wonderful week. Fish on!
0: All right, thanks, Doc Martin. If you have questions for the doctor, you can call the Fish Nerd Hotline, or which is six zero seven three seven eight fish, or you can email Clay at fishnerds or you could find Doc Martin in our Facebook group, and she will. Uh, you can tag her in a post, and she will use your posting on, on the show to help produce her segments. And we're giving away a fishing trip for two uh, at main fishing dot Uh, This is a deep-sea trip. We're going to be going for pollock. We're going to be going for cod, which we'll be releasing. Uh, We're going to be catching, hopefully, Acadia redfish and whatever else we can get in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Maine at mainetunerfishing.com. All you got to do is go to mainetunerfishing.com's Facebook page, like the page, and pinned to the top is a uh, contest link. You click through that link, fill in the form. And you will be entered. If you want to triple your chances on this trip, you can give us $10. Uh, And that $10 goes directly into our pocket to help us cover the costs of these trips. This is not a sponsored trip. This is just Captain Sean Tibbetts and me putting this together trying to uh, give you guys a good adventure. And it does cost us a lot of money to do it. So your money actually goes to help cover the cost if you throw the $10 in the hat. So we're encouraging everyone to do that. Just fill the form out, click the yes button at the end, and I will invoice you for 10 bucks, And then you'll be entered three times to win. This will be for a Sunday sometime this August. Uh, and we'll contact you if you win. So it'll be a really fun time. Uh, Captain John's grumpy, but great at his job. And we will uh, we will totally catch some fish.
1: News, news.
0: and this is from Outdoor Hub and uh, the, the title is Just How Smart Are Killer Whales? Well, new studies are showing that killer whales are now figuring out that fishing boats have free food just like any other animal they know that humans lead to food uh, and this whole article is really about a uh, really great video of orcas chasing fishing boats up in Alaska and in the Puget Sound area to eat their food so what they're happening is these fishermen are getting together, they're fishing, jigging up these big halibuts, and the orcas are just harassing them, stealing the baits. But now it's at the point when the fishing boats are traveling out, the orcas are chasing the boats. Uh, and and people aren't sure what what to do about it because they're protected animals, right? So you can't, like, kill them, which you don't want to anyway. Uh, they're using all kinds of, like, noise-making technology to try and chase them off. But these animals are super smart and aren't going to be tricked easy by people but the the videos are amazing uh i i think those videos should just those those fishermen should just go out driving around with their boats and pay tour let tourists pay them to uh <laughs> to go out instead of catching fish but it's pretty amazing uh but the uh, fishermen can't outrun these whales they they catch up and the fishermen are spending thousands on fuel uh they're not catching fish and so it's a real nuisance but I don't know the answer, man, but it is, it's is—it's fun to watch. I think I would just give up fishing on that day and just watch the whales all day. So that's the first story. Okay, this is from brightgram.com. And it's 60,000. 60,000 trout escape into a river and anglers are not happy about it. This is over in England. Fishermen wait hours to end... Uh, Fishing been wait hours on end to catch fish, usually with trusted transistor radio or a meal handy to sustain them while they wait. Transistor radio? Was this article written in 1984? Uh, one would think that hordes of fish just walking into their trap would be a dream come true for them, but they are actually rather annoyed by it. 60,000 rainbow trout have leaked into the Avon River in Hampshire, with anglers reeling up to 50 fish on a single day. That's 50 trout on a day. Uh, they have begun to complain about how all the fun is being sucked out of their sport. These fish are believed to have leaked out from a fish farm, and fishermen are not allowed to return them since they are not native to, to the waters. So I guess that, so there's a fish farm upstream of this. Fish are getting out, and the fishermen have to keep these fish. So the annoying thing is, fishermen are, are not only are they catching tons of fish, they have to keep them all. And Pe- rainbow trout aren't known to be the tastiest fish they're edible Uh, so these fishermen are stuck and they're targeting. They don't want to catch trout. These are are chub fishermen. They want giant minnows, but they're catching these trout. Um, I don't know if I would complain too much. I think I would just enjoy catching the fish, but they're feeding their cats. They're fertilizing their lawns. They are doing all kinds of stuff with these fish. Um, and they're starting to really get annoyed with them. Uh, but yeah, not being able to return them. I guess that's a problem. Uh, I, I don't know anyone who would think catching a lot of fish isn't fun, though. Um, so the idea of it, the sucking the fun out of it, I would disagree with. But um, I guess I get it. But anyway, that's that's really what's happening. Um, that's the whole story, really. So not much there. But uh, catch and eat those trout, I guess, if you're in the Avon River. And this is my favorite story. This is from WCVB Channel 5. A 20-pound lobster was found in a checked bag at Logan International Airport. This is from Boston. A massive lobster was found Sunday morning in a checked piece of luggage at Boston's International Airport. TSA agents found the 20 pound crustacean in a bag that was inside the checked bag room at the airport. According to the TSA, live lobsters are allowed through security and must be transported in a clear plastic spill proof container. Uh, the reason I put this up is moving lobsters around the country is not a new thing, but about 20 years ago in my When my stepmother turned 50, I flew out to Washington State where she lives and I was bringing her some lobster. I like to, when I travel, bring East Coast food to the West Coast. And I took a a Coleman cooler and I filled it with lobsters uh, and I put a bunch of seaweed in there to keep them cool and some newspaper to keep them wet. And I shoved that into my duffel bag and I packed my clothes all around it. And I didn't Duct tape it shut or anything. And I checked that it was in Logan Airport. Matter of fact, I checked that into Logan Airport, and I flew to Seattle. When I got to Seattle, um, that I got my luggage off the luggage carousel, and my 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 bag was soaking wet. And there was no water in the in the thing. It was just wet newspaper and stuff. Uh, so we, we pulled it off the, off, and we took it outside and we opened it up. And there were six lobsters who had somehow climbed out of the cooler and into my clean clothes or previously clean clothes. All of them survived. But my entire bag smelt like lobster um, for for months afterwards. And we ended up eating the lobsters and they were totally delicious. But this is before 9-11, before people checked bags and stuff, I guess. So it was... No big deal, but yeah, we had we we've done this. Everyone's done this. No, everyone's done. I've done this. So, yeah, that's that's fish in the news. <laughs> okay, and Hugo is back with his segment, killing fish in time with Hugo. Hugo Medeiros is still eating smooth dogfish. Check this out. And again, hey, thanks Hugo for taking the mercury hit on this for the fish nerds. Uh, you can have it.
2: Hey folks, Hugo Medeiros here bringing you some more seafood adventures for the Fish Nerds. Check us out at fishnerds.com or the Fish Nerds podcast uh, Facebook page. So today I am making something uh, very interesting. And this is always uh, a funny topic that gets lots of conversation. So um, was in a kayak fishing uh, tournament this past Saturday. Tons of fun. Uh, 60 of us out there um, fishing and having a good time so a buddy of mine caught the biggest dogfish I have ever seen it had to be at least three feet long um, for you for you guys that might not know so dogfish they look like uh, they look like a shark or a sand shark uh, this particular one I looked it up it's called a smooth houndfish or smooth dogfish uh, and the funny thing is with these is uh, they always get a bad rap and everybody hates them and has a million bad things to say. They call them trash fish and all that good stuff. Well, I enjoy them. Are they as wonderful as cod or haddock or black sea bass or tog? No, they're different. They are still wonderful to eat. Uh, so these, they came out. Uh, it's It's a white filet, a pinkish white filet if you look at it. And we'll have pictures online. It looks like a, um, it looks almost like a striper fillet. So what I'm doing today is a Portuguese-style fisherman's stew. So I have a uh, clay crock pot, which is well not traditional, but it's it's a clay pot. I'm going to put in the oven. It cooks it perfect. This one actually is a Korean-style clay pot, but it's perfect for uh, this recipe to make a stew. So, what I've done is I thin sliced onions, potatoes, and tomatoes, and I have chunks of the dogfish that I had sitting in salts for a couple hours. I've rinsed that. I figured that might firm up the texture a little bit. So, we have the chunks of the fish. So, now I made a layer of uh, onions, and then potatoes, and then tomatoes, and then the fish, and then repeat that. And now... To that, I mix in a uh, lot of uh, fresh uh, cilantro chopped up. So maybe like a fistful of cilantro. And then I roughly chopped about a dozen garlic cloves. I love garlic. I don't do the four cloves in a recipe thing. So we have that. And then added uh, maybe about half a tablespoon of salt. Uh, I will taste it later and see how that goes. And then now, I am just going to top this off with uh, a little bit of uh, good white wine. Maybe, I don't know, maybe about half a cup, if that. Just enough to get uh, get it cooking. Um, the onions and the tomatoes are going to get off their juices. That's going to add to it. It's going to make an awesome broth. I'm actually, now that I think of it, uh, going to put in... Probably a tablespoon of uh, the brand Better Than Bullion fish base. So I discovered Better Than Bullion a little while ago. Uh, you'll see them in most grocery stores now where they have the soups and stalks. It comes in a jar and they have uh, bases to make stocks or sauces or anything um, for all sorts of different flavors. They have beef, they have mushroom, they have garlic, fish, chicken, veggie, everything. And I've stopped making homemade stocks because this product, when you make your sauces or stocks out of it, it's to me, it's perfect. And I know a lot of people that love it. So I don't even bother going through the process of making uh, stocks or broths anymore because this is so wonderful. So we're going to add that, like I said, the white wine. And then I'm going to put it in the oven. And I'm hungry and I want to do this quick. So I'm going to do this little tiny clay pot for probably about 15 maybe 20 minutes i'll check it in 15 minutes i'll taste the broth see if it needs salt and then uh that's it we'll take it from there and i will post this online and uh i'll have my reports i think this is going to be wonderful if it's less than stellar i'll honestly uh, state as well but i think it's going to be good this is uh Probably the third dogfish um, meal that I've cooked since Saturday, and I'm loving it. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. Okay, so I'm back, and we have this wonderful-smelling clay pot of the uh, fisherman's stew with the smooth dogfish. Uh, It is wonderful. So the meat is nice and chunky. It didn't fall apart. Nice white meat, great flavor and texture to it. I'm wondering if um, putting it in a, a bunch of salt for two to four hours this morning might have helped firm it up. But it stood well in a uh, stood up well in a stew and fall apart. And this broth is just amazing. You guys will see the um, the recipe online. I've already wrote it. It uh, wrote it. I'll be posting it. So there you go. That's dogfish now. The interesting thing with these guys is, you know, I posted this this weekend when I brought these home and it just goes viral. Uh, You know, uh, tons of people are going to tell you they're inedible. They're this, this, and that. Um, As you see, I, I enjoy eating these. So the tough thing with them and why they're not known, I mean, some people legitimately have different tastes and different preferences for different styles of fish, which is absolutely awesome and other people just haven't tried it, and then there's just a lot of, um, you know, rumors that go around, and people repeat what they say, but yeah, I, I like these things, and um, I have lots of my friends that do as well. think they're great. Another tough thing is they're just commercially, they're, they're not easy to process like you would, you know, like Cod or Haddock that are they uh, they don't they don't spoil fast. They're thick white meat. They're real, you know they're a lot easier to fillet and handle and take on board and keep ice and bring on shore and sell than um, than a lot of other fish are that aren't so that makes them not marketable. So for this one to clean it, what I did is they have a really tough skin that feels like sandpaper and it'll dull your fillet knives. So I took a utility knife or a sheetrock knife or a box cutter or whatever you want to call it, and I made you know as you would fillet any fish. I used that to make a line down to make a cut along the um, along the top of the spine on both sides to start the uh, you know make those cuts first before filleting, and then like any and then just fillet it like any other fish. Make a cut along the uh, just behind. Uh, the head on both sides and then fillet it along the bone like as you would anything else and then take it off and skin it. So that's the, uh, you know, one of the things that makes it a little bit more difficult and why you don't see them uh, as common a uh, food fare as some other fish. Um, but yeah, no, that was it. So that's a little bit of a trick. Oh, and there, these are another one of, uh, of the fish that you have to um, gut out as soon as you get them or the quicker the better and put them on ice so you wouldn't want to leave them undressed on the boat or on shore for a couple hours and then bring them home and deal with them later or the next day you really want to gun them as soon as possible Uh, I I did it I bled them right there uh, when I got to shore and then within an hour uh, we I filleted them up so that makes a huge difference and um there you go it was a wonderful oh the only uh disclaimer i have is i'm not sure of the uh mercury levels in these fish they are predators you know so uh it's always something to look at but i'll look that up and find out but i just you know you don't want to eat them um often like you would some um, some other uh fish but check out the levels google it online mercury levels and seafood and and uh smooth dog fish and we'll figure it out But the uh, recipe was awesome. Thanks, everybody. Later.
0: Thanks, Hugo. And if you want to be part of these conversations or you want to contribute to the Fish Nerds Podcast, head over to Facebook and find the Fish Nerds Podcast group. Hit uh, Hit the join button. I will approve you to join the group, and you can be part of all of our fishy conversations. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of Fish Nerds when you should have been fishing. Big thanks to Doc Martin for being part of this show. Thanks to Hugo Medeiros for being part of this show. And thanks to you, our Patreon supporters, for keeping uh, wind in our sails. We really appreciate it. We could not do this show without you. Uh, it, really, it really matters. Um, so, until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerds. Spawn early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get and now time for your local fishing reports uh here's the one from from Ossipee, new hampshire the panfish bite is hot right now mostly early in the morning and late in the evening uh with record fish being caught every day that's ossipi new hampshire
1: hey fish nerds, mike crooker calling in a fishing report for the main new hampshire seacoast squid do not exist
0: And if you want to leave your fishing report, call 607-378-FISH and leave your fishing report with us. Thanks.